Welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. Hi, Louise. Hello. Hello, lovely divers. Hello, Alfie. (laughs) Welcome to episode 60 of the Diving In podcast. We are recording this conversation on unceded Wachak Noongar Budja in Western Australia, and we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land. Louise has a scrumptious new puppy named Alfie, (laughs) and we're sitting at her house with him right at our feet. How have the first day, few days been, Lou? Oh, well, it's been, you know, new baby territory. It's been, you know, he's brought an enormous amount of joy. I never imagined when we lost Buster in September that my heart could be filled up yes, again with yeah. a little legato, and he is just gorgeous. Oh, my goodness. Four that days in. tail. Four days in. We're still toilet training, of course. And, and you probably uh, will be for a little while. Yes, and I'm telling everyone I'm unavailable. <laughs> I'm working from home. <laughs> gorgeous. Uh, so, no, he's he's utterly gorgeous. But he does have his producer training wheels on. <laughs> he's got a, a lot of learning to do. <laughs> oh, he just adds an, a whole beautiful dimension to uh, recording a podcast. Mm. So today we thought we'd fly off to Tokyo. Well, not really, but mm-hmm. through some books. If only. <laughs> if only. Which is always an excellent entree to a new place. Uh, neither of us have been to Tokyo or Japan yet, mm. yet. But after reading my books, I really want to hop on yes, a plane so and uh, yeah. and head there. It's been such a great experience reading these books because it's reminded me how helpful it can be to read books set in the country that you're travelling to, to. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it just gives you an, a whole new dimension and another window into a place. I just I found it fantastic. Uh, We've got our first overseas holiday in four years coming up later on this year in in a few months time and uh, we know we're very out of practice with travel and it's this has reminded me that I'm going to read books set in the countries that we're going to just to get into the swing of things. So Tokyo of course is the capital of Japan used to be called Edo and it has about 14 million people, and the area of Tokyo is 2,194 kilometres squared. By comparison, Perth is 6,400 kilometres squared, and we have about 2.6 million people. <laughs> so, I mean, that there just tells you that it's going to have a very different feel mm. from, from where we live. When we decided on Tokyo as our theme, I sort of Googled around for books set in Tokyo and a few books popped up that were written by Western authors, including some authors that I really love. Yes. And, you know, there's obviously a place for those books and the perspective that they bring. But this time I was really wanting books written by Japanese authors and they really do have a very different cultural sensibility I would describe it, certainly from the ones I've read and and other books that I've previously read, as being quite formal, Mm. 
spare. Yes. Clean. Restraint. Cooler. Restraint, yes. isn't uh, And when I say cooler, I mean in, in emotional temperature. Yes. Yeah, restraint, yeah. And it's quite marked, the difference mm. from, you know, say an Australian novel mm. or, or other books that you read. But it's a, been fascinating. Uh, fascinating how they can still convey emotion. Yeah, yeah. Without yeah, the just, emotion they in the Yeah, just do it in a different way, yes. using different yeah. words or, yes. or, or the absence of words yes. or facial expression or, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, so what was your first one? Well, I've, my two books are sort of gritty crime novels and one is written by a very well-known Japanese author and the other is not. It's written by a British author who's lived in Japan since 1994. Oh, wow. So the first one I want to talk about today is A Death in Tokyo by Keigo Higashino and it was published in December last year, December 2022. And this is the third book that Higashino has written that features the protagonist detective Kaga Kiyoshiro, and I do apologise in advance if my pronunciation is is, is off. I, I haven't read the other two, but you, you don't need to. They do stand alone. Although I do imagine, as with any sort of strong writing of protagonist detectives, you do build more and more layers and understanding, sure. don't you? It's what I love about Bosch, Michael Connolly mm, and yeah. Rebus, um, Ian Rankin's Rebus. But reading A Death in Tokyo still worked for me and I felt like it was still a fully fleshed out story and it did make me want to get to know Kaga the detective more. Oh. Now, I did listen to this book on Audible. The hard copy book has a list of characters at the front of it which I think I would have found very helpful. I, I don't I don't speak Japanese, self-evidently. And I think the names and places are relatively straightforward to pronounce, but I did need to keep stopping and, and thinking, who is that which, character which again? Yeah. But actually it helped in me embed myself yeah, yeah. in the story a bit more anyway. Yeah. So, you know, but it, but it might be something to bear in mind. The book opens with the death of a man in the Neon Bash district of Tokyo. So at 9pm, a police officer from the Neon Bash Bridge station, he's outside and he notices a man from behind who appears to be unsteady on his feet and it occurs to him that possibly the man's been drinking. But he, where appearances are important and he notices he's a well-dressed man uh, and as far as he can tell, possibly middle-aged and he appears to be walking towards the bridge in the direction of a department store uh, and so the officer decides, uh, you know, I'm not going to intervene. And I, I'll just pause and mention something about this area of Tokyo because the city is very much a character in this book. And I've done some Googling and I think my sources are sound. I'm happy to be corrected by anyone. Nihonbash was originally sort of the residential and commercial area uh, of the 17th century surrounding Edo Castle. And the bridge itself, Nihonbash Bridge, which was a very important symbol of the region, was first built in 1603. Gosh. Uh, and that's the year that the Edo Shogun Gate was established. Uh, they call shoguns? Sh shogun, I'm shoguns. Not sure. Yeah. They were the hereditary military leaders appointed over different areas of Japan by the emperor. And they answered to him, but because Japan became a feudal society, the military shoguns essentially they control the country. And the shogunate hereditary military dictatorship of Japan lasted from 1192 to 1867. Oh, so it's a long, yes. long time. Yeah. And it was, I think, in 1868, at the end of that period, that Edo became Tokyo. Yeah. 
Edo is essentially the old name for Tokyo and the castle was on the site of the current Tokyo station. Um, oh. And the sort of town grew around that area. And that, has that it been area. knocked down? Well, the station is there. Right, yeah. gosh. Then the only other historical thing I'll mention is the Nihonbashi Bridge is known as the centre of the city. It's ground zero, so it's historically the point from which all distances oh. in Tokyo are measured Gosh. because it's the point from which the traders would set off to other areas of Japan, so that's how they measured the distances. And it was originally a wooden bridge in 1603, then it became a stone bridge uh, and now, if you go there, there's a giant expressway over the sort of the top of it at right angles, oh. which, you know, I imagine some people at the time thought was heresy. Yeah. But of course, when the Tokyo Olympics oh. was set for 1964, there was no spare land available. So they built all the new roads above Gosh. the canals and the rivers. Wow. You know, everything has to go up in mm. a city like that, as yeah, we've talked with the population yeah. and everything. And it's interesting because the Tokyo Olympics is a reference point in both of my books today. So it was clearly a very significant period of change for Tokyo in the early 60s. And it's still something people talk about, that sort of period, pre preparing for the Olympics. So anyway, the, the officer sees the man a few minutes later and, you know, by now he's on the bridge. You can see he's on the bridge and you know, he seems to be leaning against a, a column in the middle of the bridge. There are these ornamental columns with these stone mythical creatures, Kirins on the bridge, and the man is leaning against the base. And, uh, and then he sees that the man's quite immobile and he's thinking, oh, don't fall asleep. Oh, so, he, you know, he, he, he goes over there and holds him from behind and tries to support him and then discovers that he has a knife in his chest oh. and he slumps down. <gasps> Uh, and the man is rushed to hospital and later dies, and he's later identified as a businessman, Ayoyagi, I think is the pronunciation. And the first homicide detective on the scene is a, a Matsumiya from the Tokyo Homicide Department, and he's followed by his squadron leader, and he decides that Matsumiya will partner up with Detective Kaga. That the, right, the, the, main, the, main, the main guy. Yeah, uh, and they will be the leads on this murder investigation. And from the get-go, you just get the sense that this is going to be a very competent, methodical right. investigation. Oh. You know, the whole of the homicide department out, is out straight away, local units swarming the area of the bridge, um, searching for evidence. Where had he come from? Why had he staggered past the police station? Why hadn't he stopped? You know, they locate the crime scene a couple of blocks away. Oh. They recreate his movements. They find blood on the sidewalk. The forensics are all over it. The family's notified. And it's all very quiet and methodical. And it's a police force you feel you have confidence yes, in. Yes, yes. So Kaga and Matsumiya are paired up. And incidentally, they're cousins. Oh. And it's, I think it's a, it's, it's a lovely sort of angle to the story because it adds a dimension to their partnership. They're, they're obviously family. They have more insight into each other. Yeah. Both good and bad. And, yeah. and perhaps it sort of helps their working relationship but also can get in the way of their yes, working relationship. Interesting. So it adds this lovely colour to, yeah, to their partnership. And as you said, and without generalising, Japanese culture is typically described as sort of quite respectful and restrained. And there is this quiet restraint between the two cousins. So as a parallel, we learn that there's a young couple who five years ago have pooled their modest savings and they've moved to Tokyo to find work and follow their dreams. 
There's Foyuki Yashima, or Yuki, as he's known, and his girlfriend, Kawadi. And late in the evening of the day that Ayoyadi is found stabbed on the bridge, Kawadi gets a phone call from Yuki to say, I'm going to be a little bit late. I've got a lead on a job interview. And he hadn't had a lot of luck with work, so this was an important thing for him to do. But he doesn't come home, and she's quite concerned. And she sends him lots of texts, and she eventually gets a call from him very late at night, and he sounds terrible. Oh. And he says, I don't know what to do. I've done something awful. Something terrible has happened, and I don't know what to do. And then the phone cuts out. Oh. So she keeps calling him back. And this is literally in the first, you know, oh my first Lord. few pages of chapters of the book. So, I'm, I'm, you know, it's and it's back cover and all the rest of it. So she keeps calling him back, and after about 20 times, there's a male voice on the phone she doesn't recognise. And he is a policeman on Fuyuki's uh, phone, and he tells her, Fuyuki has been hit by a truck running across the road and he's been rushed to hospital in a critical condition. Oh, my gosh. Um, and, of course, preying on her mind is their last conversation. Yeah. They've both had very difficult lives, one raised by an abusive parent, one in an orphanage. The economy in Tokyo is in, not in great shape. They thought they sort of would be having a new life in Tokyo and it's been life's been harder for them and Fuyuki's recently been dismissed from a factory he'd been working at. So I'm not going to say too much about those two. Safe to say that Fuyuki's in a coma. Oh. And the police find in his possession oh, no. the wallet of the sto- of oh. the stabbed man. Oh no. I thought you were going to say the knife, but no. I, I knew there was going to be a connection, <laughs> like connection. somewhere. Oh my god. And goodness. of course everyone jumps to the conclusion that He's a des- desperate young man and he's somehow implicated in the murder. I don't think it was him. <laughs> is, I've got to tell you. Is Alfie eating your bag? No, I'm just getting a hair clip. <laughs> I, I think uh, he sounded like a nice person and I just I think he's been framed. <laughs> but and if, that really does drive the story it does, forward. It does. It? And, of course, when you're in a coma, you can't speak for yourself. So you're kind of reliant on a competent a, a good, police force a good, yeah. and a good detective. Oh. And so, fortunately for some and unfortunately for others, the detectives Kaga and Matsuma meticulously interrogate the facts from all angles. And the layers of evidence grow quite slowly, but it's a very compelling way and it's a very satisfying police procedure. The last thing I'll I'll talk about with this book is that there's an area of Tokyo quite close to Nihonbashi in relative terms called Ningyosho, and it's famous for its seven lucky god shrines some of them are very beautiful. They're all very well looked after and sort of beloved in their neighbourhood. Some of them are over 700 years or so. Gosh. And people visit the shrines and the seven gods throughout the year, but it is a particular tradition at New Year. So these are the seven lucky gods of Japan. And there's a lot of shrines around Japan wow. in honour of these gods. Right. And they're an eclectic sort of group of deities from... Japan, India, and China. So it's Shinto, Buddhism, and Hinduism. Oh, okay. But the ones in Ningyoshu, I believe, are mainly Shinto um, shrines. And one of the shrines, the Kasama Inari shrine, features significantly in this novel. It's a 300-year-old shrine. It's been twice destroyed. Gosh. Once during the Great Earthquake in Tokyo in uh, 1923 and again during the Second World War. But in this novel, Kaga and... Matsumiya discover that somebody has made a thousand origami coloured paper cranes, a flock of cranes, to leave at the site of the shrine. So I'm not going to tell you what the sh- this particular shrine is said to protect or Ooh. promote, but it's something to do with water and something to do with mothers. 
So, um, and, and does that link in with solving the crime? It, yeah, it's all oh, interconnected. Oh, so, that sounds so I really good enjoyed ways. this book. That sounds right up your alley. Yeah, really, really great. What a great procedure. Yeah. It's a Death in Tokyo by Keigo Higashino. That sounds fabulous. I can tell you're going to read the other ones by him because once you get into it, you just you get hooked. Absolutely. The first one that I read was it's called The Book of Tokyo. It's a collection of short stories and it's edited by Michael Emmerich, Jim Hinks and Masashi Matsui. It really gave a lovely broad flavour of Tokyo, I felt. There are 10 stories in the collection and they're all by different authors and I'm pretty sure there are 10 different translators. There's certainly a lot of different translators. And these stories all have a very strong sense of being in Tokyo, even though the descriptions, I would say, are fairly limited or incidental to the story. It, they're certainly not written with a view to describing a particular part of Tokyo, but, but you, still, you still certainly felt very much embedded in the place. There are lots of references to trains, tatami mats, futons, eating rice and pickles, being an office lady or an office man, lots of cherry blossom oh, references. Yes. So they're a wonderful collection. Interestingly, I couldn't really tell that they were all written by different authors. To me, they could easily have been written by the one Yeah, author. how interesting. Mm. Similar voice. Very similar voice. And I thought perhaps the editor's of the collection chose them for their for the similar feel they had to have uh, you know there's a cohesiveness there but you know it's hard to tell when something's been translated too right? so I'm not really sure how that came to be they're really very well written most of them are written in the first person and they they have an immediacy to them which I particularly admired I thought they were they were really excellent at bringing you straight into the room or into the scene and all of the narrators or, or the main characters all have a, there's a very strong sense of being alone in the world. Oh, wow. Even though they have families, there are not many references to friendships or being out with friends or interacting with people. Um, and it, that might, might just be this particular collection. I'm, I'm not sure what that tells us about Japan, but you certainly got to know the individual characters very clearly. And I do find that's often the case that sometimes learning about one specific thing can be more illuminating than being given a, a broad sort of sweep of things. Yes, yes, I agree. So it was, it was quite effective. Mm. Some of these stories are quite quirky mm. and they don't have a big dramatic twist, which, you know, some, some short stories do, some don't. These are just sort of small stories about a life. There was one that I just really didn't get, <laughs> which is probably not uncommon when you're reading a collection like this. I'll, I'll just talk about one of them in, in detail that I particularly enjoyed, and it was called A House for Two by Mitsuo, Ooh. and it was translated by Hart Larrabee. And this is the story of a young woman who lives with her mother. She has an older sister who left home at 20 and sort of got out of there as soon as she could get out of the house. And her name is, the narrator is Ku Chan. I think that means like dear Ku. And she tells us that their father left them for another woman many years ago. And as Ku Chan goes on telling her story and talking about her relationship with her mother, the reader becomes aware that maybe the narrator is a bit naive or innocent or even maybe a bit deluded. 
Mm. especially about the mother. Mm. Oh. <laughs> and you start to see the mother, you know, it's sort of like pulling the camera back. And you, when Kuchan goes to visit her sister or interacts with her sister, you get glimpses of seeing the mother through the elder daughter's eyes, just in glimpses. But it's quite disorienting because initially the narrator gives a much more sanguine impression of her mother and the, and the closeness of their relationship. And then you start to see <laughs> sort of discrepancies or odd, odd I love things. That. It was yeah. so cleverly done. So one of the things is that the mother snoops or she used, Ooh. when the girls were both living at home, the mother used to snoop in their bedroom and read through their diaries, go through their things, see what they were up to. And the elder daughter's response to this was that she started to lock everything. I was going to say it indicates that she's not having, she doesn't feel she has enough information about their lives. Yeah, so it's one of those questions mm. about is it the chicken or the egg? Yes. And I never got to the bottom of mm. that. But the different daughter's reaction to this was so fascinating because the elder daughter became very secretive, mm. hid everything, didn't tell her mother anything, locked everything, had a locked diary, all that sort of thing, and got out of there and really is disconnected from mm. her mother. They see each other very rarely. Whereas the narrator, uh, Ku Chan, took the opposite response and leaves everything out and open, tells her mother everything so that nothing is a secret and there's yes. no need to snoop. So therefore her mother doesn't inquire yeah. further. Oh, yeah. it's quite clever. Well, quite interesting. Emotionally, quite, quite an emotionally intelligent yeah. kind of. Yeah. Well, interesting. maybe. Two, maybe. Just two different approaches mm. to that dynamic. And one of the fascinating things about this was that after talking about her father having left the family, Kuchan relays an experience where she says she came home from school to find her mother crying and digging something in the garden. Mm-hmm. And then nothing more is said about it. I, I just kept searching for other clues about what that was all about. And I, I, I don't think I got them. Did they ever revisit the place where? No, no, just in the backyard. So she, Kuchan narrates the story of how she nearly married at one point when mm. she was about 26. Um, she met a, a guy and they decided to get married. And then the mother when she met the prospective in-laws, sort of picked an argument with them <laughs> and the whole thing went pear-shaped and the marriage never took place. And Kuchan is quite unemotional about it and she sort of thinks well, it was probably for the best. And then she goes out for lunch with a man who used to be a work colleague and he seems like quite a nice chap. And he tries to sort of engage her in a conversation about whether she's lonely and you know, she's a single woman, um, she's not married, she doesn't have children, she's living, you know, with her mother and, you know, will she be lonely when the mother dies? What's she going to do with her life? And Kuchan just sort of bats this away and she says, no, I, I won't be lonely when my mother dies and I'm I'm fine. And you sort of believe her because I think she was being quite honest in the story. Mm. And then the story just sort of ends with, this Kuchan saying goodbye to this work colleague and she goes into a supermarket, buys some fish for dinner, catches the train, gets off the train, walks home beside the river with the fish and heads home towards her mother and she's sort of reflecting that she won't be lonely when her mother dies. And it's it's a funny little story and it's, and it's not dissimilar to some of the others that doesn't have a big twist, doesn't have a dramatic turn or a, or a big revelation 
it raised for me more questions than it answered, but it really did embed me in Tokyo. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, you know, the supermarket that she goes into and the people around her and the train and the whole thing was just well, it's fabulous. Often the gran- when you're part of, as yeah. you say, the granular... Yes minutiae of someone's life yep. and, yep. you know, the, 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 the emotion, detail. the domestic. Exactly. Yeah, it often does that too. Yeah, does it, it stays great. with you? It really does. I can mm. picture the whole thing. So the other stories are quite similar to that. There's a sort of a, there's one that's a sort of a quirky personal tale with the narrator revealing the story bit by bit. And then they just sort of keep going on with their lives. It's And that's sort of quite a common theme here. There's one about a male, a guy who's a sushi chef and he sort of meets up with a young French woman who recognises the the bag that he's carrying and it's a French book company and they strike up a conversation and he ends up going back to the little wooden boarding house that she's living in with heaps of other girls who are from outside of Japan and they're chatting away in this boarding house and there's girls from all different countries, people who come from Australia and it sort of slowly comes out that these girls have all been recruited ostensibly to teach English or to teach their own language, in the case of the French girl. But actually the reality is that what they do is they go and do shifts at night at a club sitting uh, next to Japanese businessmen. Ah, uh, okay. So and you can read into hostesses, that what the hostesses, you will, uh, because it's never made clear how no, far that goes. No. But, you know, it's, a, it's just a fantastic little tale about what things seemed like on the surface yes. and then as you just yes. went layer by layer yes. by layer. A lot of Australian girls yeah. that we were at uni with, I mean, it was a thing that yeah. you would go to Japan to be a hostess. Lots of people yes. went. Well, I, know, I didn't know many that went to be a hostess, but I knew lots that went to teach English and uh, there may have been more to yeah, that. No, I, yeah, and, yeah, and look, and a lot of them to this day absolutely were adamant that it simply was yeah. to simply be the companions yeah. and to encourage them actually to buy alcohol. Yes. Sort of like a sort well, of like that's a, what it was said in yes, here. So yeah. But I'm, I, I think the that cynic in some me bars it, was, it, was, it went a bit further. Well, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I, I don't know. And there's another story about a slightly disturbed young girl who ends up sharing a taxi with a stranger and she pretends mm. to be travelling to the same place as he is. There's quite oh, a bit of tension okay. and interest yeah. there because she's sort of lied about where she's going. And that that was quite a fascinating one. There's another one about a mother looking back to her childhood and the expectations of her parents and the way she met those expectations. Mm. And she became an office lady. She married and she had children and so on. And now her own daughter is grown up and things are changing in Japan and that story is quite an, a fascinating reflection of the rate of change yes. in Japan yes. and the lowered, perhaps lowered expectations that the, there's a sister-in-law who refuses to come and live with the family when she marries the, mm. the brother, which was obviously done in the past. It was expected that she would do that and she just says no. And that, you know, I think that's a, a bit of a, causes a bit of a rupture and that mm. times are changing mm. and she doesn't feel that she has to do that. So... I really related to that because, you know, I think I've, you and I mm. at our age have noticed a lot of, you know, change across the arc of our lives. And the thing that struck me, though, was that the rate of change didn't perhaps seem quite as rapid yeah. there okay. as it has been in, say, Australia or yes. the USA. Or yes. UK. They're still very respectful. There's still a lot of bowing yes. and courtesy and restraint. 
which I think has <laughs> sort yeah. of that sort of thing's gone out and maybe the that has here. been changed to fundamental things, but that sort of the I veneer. don't want to say facade, but yeah, yeah the veneer yeah. of of respectability yeah. and yeah. has remained, and which means it hasn't necessarily kept pace with other maybe. changes in society. Yeah, maybe. I quite like but. that veneer though yeah. I quite yeah. like that yeah well it's very civil it is very civil so all in all I absolutely loved mm. this collection and I sort of felt as though I'd had a little bit of a holiday away from my own life and yes. culture yeah yeah it is when you yeah. deep dive into a city sometimes yeah. I think that yeah. happens doesn't it so that was the book of Tokyo mm. it was great well my next book it's pretty huge as a story it's a sort of very big involved story so and also, it's again, it's a very gritty crime book. In fact, far more gritty than A Death in Tokyo. So, you know, my review might be a bit superficial because A, I don't want to give too many spoilers no. and, and B, I couldn't possibly do justice to the mm. arc of the entire book. So bear with me. It's Tokyo Redux by the British novel novelist David Peace and published by Faber in 2021. And this is the third part of a trilogy. The other two are Tokyo Year Zero and Occupied City. And by way of background, David Peace is a Yorkshireman, but he's lived in Tokyo since 1994. And the, the, the three books, the, the trilogy, are all start in Occupied Japan after World War II, and each one of them deals with a crime that occurred during the occupation. And I have to say, I, I'm not especially clued up on Occupied Japan, that period. So I guess by way of a sort of a superficial overview, after World War II, the United States, with support, I suppose, from the British Commonwealth, they led the Allied occupation of Japan, which I hadn't appreciated, involved close to a million Allied soldiers no, in I Japan. And the occupation continued until 1952 with the Treaty of San Francisco. Wow. And it was led by General Douglas MacArthur. Right. And he wielded a lot of influence because their intent at the time was to really radically change the civil administration of Japan, um, changes to police, changes to civil liberties, uh -huh. which were introduced. So some people I'm sure would say, you know, they were very yeah. positive things, but, yeah. you know, it's just such a double-edged sword. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, you know, Japan had been decimated yes. from the nuclear and, you know, yeah. I imagine there was just horrendous resentment. Also and also economic devastation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the story of Tokyo Redux centres upon the real-life disappearance and death of Sadanori Shioyama, who was the first president of the Japanese National Railways, which is a very senior role. It's more senior than a minister, for example. He'd wow. previously been the minister for railways. And his death was the subject of enormous notoriety. Uh, you know, there was different theories and conspiracies and speculation. Oh. And, and in many ways, it's sort of, it's representative, that story of him, of, of his personal life and his work and then his subsequent death, of very much part of the occupation of Japan. At the time of his death, it was known that he was about to sack thousands of employees at the National Railway Department. I mean, the Americans ordered him to sack 100,000 wow. workers. And he so had... he was not a popular... He wasn't. <laughs> and he and his colleagues had all received huge number of death threats. Uh -huh. There were posters all over Tokyo, kill, right. you know, Satanori. And, you know, obviously the workers and unions were quite strong and the Japanese Communist Party was growing in popularity. So on that note, I should, it's useful to know that 
there was a Soviet and Chinese presence in Japan. You know, they were part of the Allied force, but the Soviet Union chose not to participate because they, they would have had to be working under the the order of the Americans. So, right. you know, they would have had to send Soviet troops and those Soviet troops would have had to be subject to MacArthur's direct Which command. They so they chose wanted. not to yeah, do. Yeah. But, of course, there was a Soviet embassy and there, were, there, were, there was definitely a Soviet right. presence. And there is... So that might give you a bit of a flavour yeah. of so this Cold War yeah. spies mm. kind of era that we're talking yeah. about. Um, and, you know, everybody speculated. The press went into overdrive. Were the Americans responsible? Were the Soviets responsible? Right. Which political faction wanted him gone the most? So... You know, this is the, the sort of start of, of this particular book, Tokyo Gosh. Redux. But the novel itself covers three periods. So it's almost like a triptych. It covers 1949, the period I just talked about, the occupation. Then 1964, the years when Hostia, uh, Tokyo hosted the oh, Olympics. Okay, yeah. And then the final days of Emperor Shower's death in 1989. And in all three eras the death of Satnori remains a topic of discussion wow. and a, and a centre point. And each of these periods in the book has its own investigative protagonist, a detective in the first, a private investigator in 1964 and a translator in 1989. Oh. But I'm really only going to talk about the first one, the 949, because okay. it's just, it's massive. Yeah. I would have liked to map it out on a whiteboard. <laughs> and look, it's quite brilliant the way Peace has knitted this all together. So we learn that the conduct of the 1949 investigation, and of course I'm now talking about the fictional okay. book, will be undertaken by the Japanese-administered um, Metropolitan Police Department in Tokyo, as well as the US Allied Force-led Public Safety Department. That's right. what they call themselves. Which, by virtue of the occupation, definitely had the upper hand and seniority, and they did not fail to exercise it. Right. So the detective protagonist at the Public Safety Department is a Harry Sweeney. He's answerable to his chief, Chief Evans. You see, uh, Amer American. He's an yeah, American, yes. American. Yeah. But he's also answerable to various US colonels and generals who want Satanori's death solved as quickly as possible. And he's a tough, whiskey-drinking, highly competent detective from Montana. Oh. Uh, and you like him immediately. His reputation in Tokyo precedes him. It's very positive because he's previously uh, dismantled lots of rival gangs. You know, it's such a Hollywood name, Harry Sweeney. It is. <laughs> and it feels like he has stepped out of a uh, Raymond Chandler yes. novel. It's very Roman noir. <laughs> a bit predictably, he has his own demons and problems. Yeah, of course. Alcohol or of the above. <laughs> we never know precisely what they are. Much is okay. hinted, a few clear clues. And his personal life is a shambles. Um, <laughs> but it really did make me think about all the former soldiers and perhaps also people that hadn't served, but I imagine many of them had, who would have ended up working as part of an occupied force in sort of administration, desk jobs, management jobs, government jobs, a lot of them police officers and other professions, many of them without their families with them. Yeah. And most of them carrying some baggage and trauma from the war. Yes. And then they're living as foreigners with a civilian population that has suffered its own loss. Lots of trauma. And has its own resentments and and really... And doesn't want them there. And, you know, the powers that be being responsible for sort of those decisions, you know, the civilians had no... There was no sort of 
worse or less val- yeah. validity to, yeah. to the feelings. Yeah. And in Harry Sweeney's case, his demons culminate in an appalling incident for which there can be absolutely no excuse. But it does serve to highlight the violence that sits very close to the surface right. in this, you know, in this era. Okay. Uh, and so I guess to that extent, if, if that's something that might bother you, maybe this isn't the book for you. So the body of Sadanori is found in pieces. Oh, my goodness. Beheaded on a railway track. And that discovery brings Harry's tolerance for the oppositional officers of the Tokyo Metropolitan Police to a new low. There's a bitter rivalry, particularly Sweeney clashes with an officer, Hattori, who can barely disguise his contempt for the Americans. He and his superiors are pushing the suicide version of events. They want to wrap up the investigation. Suicide? Yes, they think that he suicided. On the other hand, you know, Harry's not intimidated by Hattori. He thinks the Japanese police are incompetent oh, oh, and okay. there's much more to the death than suicide. All right. So, as I said, I make no apologies for the atrocities of World War II. They're a given. But occupation is a weird thing. Yeah, really you know, is. it strives for and um, promises reform, rule of law, but it's also, it's so fraught, yeah, it, it's yeah. paternalistic yeah. and it's sometimes every bit as corrupt as the regime they're trying to occupy. Uh, And so I can really see the point of view in some respects of this quite odious Hattori because I can understand why they would be so resentful. Yeah. So occupied Cold War Tokyo is very front and centre in this book. It's very atmospheric. You can think of lots of drinking in bars, American colonels with women on their arms. Lots of Japanese women. Lots of Japanese women. Gangsters that seem to be pulling everyone's strings and seem to be ahead of the action in everything. There's foreigners who you don't know whose side they're on. It's quite cinematic. I was going to say, it's a great... Yeah, it's a really cinematic, gritty, grimy Mm. feel to it. And then, you know, we do move to 1964 and uh, Marota Hideki is a former police officer who's fired and he's now working as a PI. And there's a lovely connection because he is a, a colleague, a former colleague and friend of Hattori. Right. And they drink a lot together. So there's and, some continuity yes, there. And they reminisce about the Sadanori investigation okay. and, you know, Hattori is still sticking to his suicide theory because it's not... It's never been solved. No, it's, I was going to say, it's not a spoiler to tell you that even to this day... Right. It's, it's a oh mystery that goodness. people don't know the answer to. Wow. And... Uh, Hideki, the PI, is approached by a new client, ostensibly a publishing house, that wished to find an author, Kuroda Roman, also a real person, a writer of crime novels who's been missing for six months and to whom the publishing house has paid a considerable advance for his manuscript. And I'm not going to tell you how that links to the 1949 part of the story. Okay. And then, as I said, the final sleuth is a translator uh, and he's perhaps sort of a Hemingway figure. And I might say there is a very Hemingway vibe to to this book as well. Okay. And that brings me to the language because it's a very dialogue-driven book in the way that Hemingway's books are. But in the bits that are third-party descriptive narrative, he uses a lot of he, he loses a lot of repetition. So he, within one paragraph, he might repeat words and repeat phrases. And he often anchors multiple paragraphs by repeating the same. Okay. And you're often inside people's heads. And so, you know, it might be that they're dwelling on something. So they repeat in their minds, they're repeating the same phrases and the same words. And it's very unusual at first, but 
I really enjoyed reading it because the repetition, yeah. a little bit like the first book, it slowed me down. Yeah. So, I, look, I, I really, really fabulous. love this book. I, I couldn't possibly do justice to it because it, there's so many themes. There's a huge dose of madness right. running through the book. Yeah. And uh, it's very easy to lose the thread of the characters and that you really have yeah. to just bed yourself down for a couple of weeks to read it. But I can highly recommend it. That's Tokyo Redux and it's uh, published by Faber in 2021 and it's widely available. Okay. I'm now going to go and grab the other two because I want to read yeah. the trilogy. Well, that's been very enlightening to me just because in the short stories that I talked about and in my next book, there are lots of little references to 64. Yes. There's even references to that 23, 1923 yes, earthquake, earthquake. Yeah. and references to the rapid expansion and the rate of growth. Yes. And so it's it's very useful to read a book yes. like that because it really anchors your understanding of after the war, that's that's where Tokyo sort of started again. Yes, or Japan, exactly. Really. And they're these significant yeah. milestones. And it colours everything going yeah. forward. Yes. And they're events that impact the entire population. Yeah. I mean, maybe yeah. Tokyo Olympics less so, but... But but it was wholesale change. With, yeah, you know, they had yeah. to be dragged into this m sort of modern yes. era. But yes, I think the earthquake and clearly, the, you know, obviously the occupation, they're just massive events. So that yeah. obviously impacted the lives of ordinary people and that's retold through the generations. So, yeah, no, fascinating. Yeah, no, I loved that, Lou. I thought that was very uh, illuminating for me. My second book, oh gosh, I loved this book. It was called Convenience Store Woman by Sayaka Murata and it was translated by Ginny Tapley Takamori. Mm. It's quite a short little novel. I don't really know how big it was because once again I read it on my iPad. Completely gripping. It's about a young woman who opens the story and she is talking about her work in a convenience store and then she goes back and she tells us about a few incidents from her childhood at school where she behaved very differently from the accepted way and she got herself into a lot of trouble. One example was an incident when she was in probably like grade one, very lower primary, mm. and there were two kids, two boys fighting in the playground, physically punching each other up and... People were yelling out, or other kids were yelling out, get a teacher, someone stop them. And our main character, the convenience store woman, uh, runs over to a shed, grabs a spade mm. and whacks one of the boys over the head Whoa. with it. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, that oh. did put a stop to the fight. Did and it put a stop to the boy? Nearly. Oh, She sort Lord. of whacked him on the skull and she was about to whack the other boy on the skull as well. And everyone was just frozen in <laughs> horror, of course. And she was quite mystified about what she had done wrong. She didn't get it at all. She thought that what she had done was a perfectly appropriate response to, you know, someone stop them. Mm. Uh, she thought she that's what she had been told to do and so she did it. And there were several other little incidents like that that you can see she's mm. Perhaps a little bit quirky or a bit unusual, but you're not really sure whether it's just young naivety, no awareness, you know. So she grew up believing or perhaps realising that she's different from everyone else and her family thinks she needs to be cured 
she leaves school and she starts university and she gets a job in a very a brand spanking new convenience store, which I think we would call a supermarket. I was just going to stop you and ask you about that because yeah. convenience store is obviously the translated term, mm. but I see it so often yeah. that it must be the accepted translation for the name of the of the, that type of store. It must be. So it it, must I wonder be. if that's an American or English or. Because, but, but Japanese people must approve of that being the, the translated I'd say so. words. I'd so say it's so. fascinating. It isn't was it? really interesting to me. And I, because I thought, I'm sort of curious about the size of it and how yes. it would compare. Yes. Because is it a local deli on the corner or yeah. is it like a. Is it like one of our IGAs, which is a very small supermarket? Yes. Or is it like a Coles enormous yes. supermarket? Or is it a little co op? 7-Eleven or yeah, is it yeah. a, like, you know, deli or, yeah, it's yeah. fascinating. Uh, and having read it, I got the impression it was like a supermarket, maybe yes. a small supermarket. Yes, like, okay. Because of the range of things they sold and the number of employees. Yes. That was the impression I got. And I don't even know, do Americans call supermarkets supermarkets or do they call them convenience yes, stores? Yes, because I do imagine that the American English would prevail in Japan, yeah, partially because too. of the occupation. Yeah, of course. So, yeah. yes, maybe they do yeah. call them convenience stores. I don't know. Yeah, because initially I thought it was going to be more like a Kmart or a Target, not a food-related one. Yes, but this one was yes. very food relations. So. And I'm assuming that convenience is because when you need something quickly, yeah. it's convenient to just go to the corner store. Yeah, it's that sort yeah. of yes. Yeah. And the types of food. There's lots of lunches and pre-prepared yes. things. Yes, and okay. Yeah, yeah, dinners and yeah. Things you can heat up quickly, lots of that sort of thing. So she sees a sign saying new store opening and she applies for the job. She gets the job and then she has, bizarrely, two weeks of training in how to be an employee in this store. And there's a lot of training about how to stack the shelves and that sort of thing. But there's also a lot of training in how to deal with customers and how to speak to them and that sort of thing, which I found fascinating. She absolutely loves working there. So she starts work. She finds that it's just her perfect sort of environment to be in. Even though it's regarded by other people as something you do when you're a student or you do it as a temporary thing, perhaps until you've finished your studies or you're trying to get into another field or a more permanent position somewhere. Or you might, if you're a woman, get married and have a family and, mm. and not work there anymore. But for her, it's it's the most wonderful place. And I'll just read the opening oh, yes. paragraph because I think it, it gives a flavour of, of the whole story. A convenience store is a world of sound. From the tinkle of the door chime to the voices of TV celebrities advertising new products over the in-store cable network to the calls of the store workers the beeps of the barcode scanner, the rustle of customers picking up items and placing them in baskets, and the clacking of heels walking around the store. It all blends into the convenience store sound mm. that ceaselessly caresses my eardrums. So I love that. She, you can tell this is a person who just loves her job. Yes. <laughs> she feels safe there, doesn't yeah, she? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And she's really a star employee. Mm. She loves restocking the shelves. She takes great pride in doing the job perfectly. She loves chatting to the customers just the right amount. She loves noticing what they need but waiting for them and letting them decide without sort of pushing them. She notices when things are becoming popular and that they might need to order more of them. She deliberately chooses to 
get off her train station at one train station early and walk part of the way to work mm. so that she can take note if there is, say, a new block of apartments being completed because mm. that will mean extra mm. customers coming in and they need to order more stock for lunches or, or if there's a new building going up and there's going to be new builders coming in and they might need extra things. And she says that in working here, she feels that she's a normal cog in society. And the most fascinating thing about her is that she talks about the fact that she has to copy other people. Mm. So she copies how they talk and the different inflections they use. She copies what they talk about and which things rile up other people. So other staff members might become very annoyed about something that's happening in politics or the world or a customer or something, and they really don't bother mm. her at all. But she copies what they do and she'll speak in the same way to, to sort of fit in. And she does this because she doesn't know how to do these things herself or she doesn't know how to do them in a way that would make her fit in. She's always been odd. Her, her family thinks she's odd. They want to cure her and... She just has to try and get by in a way that will uh, reduce those frictions of, of when you're a sort of a fish out of water. She also really copies what the other women wear, what her work colleagues wear, what handbags they buy, what shoes they buy so that she can fit in and be like them. Is that fascinating? And I spent a lot of the book wondering whether she really was different from other mm. people and, say, neurodivergent yes. or whether she had some sort of personality disorder. Yes. Or whether she your, just believed that. Your personal, your personal <laughs> my, expertise. My personal favourite. <laughs> or whether she just believed quite incorrectly that she yes. was different. Yes, And I kept thinking, well, does she not realise that most people are influenced by their circle of friends and influenced in the way they speak or the concerns they have or the handbags they buy or yes. the shoes they go, yeah. they wear and what's fashionable. I, I, I never really figured out the answer no. to that. I, and there were some very interesting little clues about her, about the way it's written, it really does keep you turning the page. Mm. It's very, very well done. And she's sort of regarded as a bit of an odd thing by the other employees. She has this very small group of friends. She sort of after she leaves school, she really only retains touch with one mm. other school friend because she sort of got through school sort of keeping her mouth shut because she felt she was different from everybody. But she sort of keeps in touch with one school friend and then that school friend includes her in her circle of friends. But she really doesn't fit in there either. They're all married and they've had children yes. and they don't understand why she's not married with children, they don't understand why she's still working in a convenience store. She appears to enjoy it and mm. they can't understand why she hasn't moved on and, and, and got a better job. They try and line her up or suggest that they can line her up with dates and so she can meet men. And then a rather odd and disruptive guy comes to work at the mm. convenience store, dot, dot, dot. So... There's, it's sort of the stranger comes to town scenario. Yeah, and I'm not yeah. going to say what happens when this guy comes to town, but it's sort of an interesting... What would um, dis disrupt? A, a, yeah, he's sort of, he's a bit shambolic and he doesn't fit in and he's perhaps got some qualities a bit like her mm -hmm. and the rest of the story is really about their interaction. Mm. Let's just say mm. that. But I really 
loved the cultural sensibilities of, of this book. It sort mm. of had an immersive effect on me. I, I felt as though I was in Tokyo, I was in the store. Yeah. One of the really striking cultural differences is the way that the employers grill the staff and train the staff in this very disciplinary way mm. as to how to greet customers. So they go in the back room before the store opens and they have to chant I can't really pronounce this very well, but it's something like Irasa Shamase yes. <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. Good morning, sir, and yes. bow. And they have to do this over and over to yes. everyone who comes into the store and they have to be incredibly... It's quite ritualistic. Ritualistic, very disciplined, mm. very respectful. And I just kept thinking, can you imagine if staff were told to do this in our cold supermarket? I know, I mean, it just would not wash here in Australia no. at all. <laughs> I mean, I don't think we're particularly disrespectful people. We're just sort of... Easy come, easy go. But we just, if you could not demand that of your employees. No. You would have a, you would be in court. <laughs> it would be viewed as unreasonable. It would be completely yes. unreasonable yeah. and you would be up before some sort of tribunal for something. So that was very interesting because it was obviously widespread and mm. it's just the way employers treat their, their staff and, and the way they run their businesses. And the other thing that really struck me was the tiny apartment that this woman lives in. It's one tiny room and a tiny, tiny bathroom. It's so tiny that she has to roll her futon out at night and then roll it back. It's sort of only the size of a few tatami mats. Yes. And it's got one little folding table and one little chair. It's, it's yes. Like, and that's where yeah. she goes home at night. And the simplicity. So simple. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I just kept thinking, gosh, we just don't live like that We here. don't live like that. And we don't live like that. So it's a great little story. It doesn't have a massive twist, although this guy that comes to work at the store sort of adds a whole new dim mm. dimension to her life and brings some disruption to it because she's been there. By the time this story starts, she's been there for something like, I think it's 18 years or something wow. like that. But how are you fascinating that this is such a compelling story about again such a, a granular thing. domestic such kind of such a small yeah. story and yeah. you think uh, i mean if i was thinking uh, i'm going to write a book about a, a person who works at a supermarket i would just think oh that wouldn't be very interesting yes i'd have to find some dramatic thing yeah, that happens to make or, it much more interesting yeah. i could not stop turning the pages it was yes. so wonderful oh, fabulous. so well That's written a testament yeah. to the writing so that was convenience store woman by sayaka murata oh fantastic it was fantastic. really really good really great little story so what else have you been diving into lately, Lou? Well, I did want to remind everybody to also have a look at one of our other, listen to one of our other episodes where we reviewed the um, Before the Coffee Gets Cold. Oh, yes, of course. Because those books, yes. that's by Toshikazu Kawaji. Um, those books are also based in Tokyo and they were, they were utterly delightful short stories. So have a quick look through. So, yeah, a couple of other things. So I have, to my shame, been watching... Uh, Vani V. Rooney. Oh, my goodness. And uh, for those of you that don't know, Rebecca Vani and Colleen Rooney are the wives, the wags of two very, very well-known British soccer players, footballers. And Colleen Rooney had, oh, probably still has, an enormous following on social media and uh, a private Instagram account. And she noticed that a lot of the private stories were being leaked to the sun in Britain. And so she decided to have her own sting operation. 
It was so clever. Yeah, so where she arranged for Rebecca Varney's account to be the only one that yep. could actually see the stories so she could smoke out to see she whether... Had, she Varney, suspected, Yeah, she, she did. Well, the, the, you know, there was obviously, obviously there's a background, the yeah, tension yeah, between them and the issues yeah, between yeah. them previously. And she narrowed it down and thought, yes, I think it's, it's her. Yeah. And it, it proved to be that those stories were then leaked. And, of course, there's a added complication that Caroline Watt, who was Varney's agent also had access over Rani's account. Anyhow, Colin Rooney published on Instagram this extraordinary <laughs> post where she said, this is what happened, so I conducted my own sting yep. and blah, 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 and the only account is Rebecca Varney. And she, so the Rebecca Varney reveal is the last sentence in the post. It's, it's, it's really quite something. It's really something. So, of course, Rebecca Varney sues her for defamation. Yep. Why, I do not I know. know. I know. Um, so anyway, I think this TV series is the project of Michael Sheen, the actor Michael Sheen, who I absolutely adore. He's Frost versus Nixon. Yes. He's been in so many yep. different things. Yep. I think he's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, he's very he good. plays the QC who represents Colleen Rooney. Right. Now, this is a very accurate series because so far, haven't watched it all, you are only either in the courtroom oh, okay. where they are going through line by line <laughs> the transcripts. So Michael Sheen is cross-examining Rebecca Varney. So it's such a fast street, oh, Virginia. I've got to watch Or this. they are in the anterooms or in the chambers with their barristers and they are reading through Gosh. their statements of evidence. So it is highly accurate because yeah. it is taken directly word for word. Michael Sheen's performance as... I can't remember the QC. It's a sort of a showman QC that okay. he is acting. Is absolutely oh. brilliant. And his cross-examination of Rebecca Varney, because there's all the sort of slight nuances of her face oh. and her, the, her facial tics, the way she looks at the judge and refers oh. to her constantly as my lady. Oh. <laughs> and it is absolutely superb. Oh. So it sounds like it's really superficial and about these two wags, the production value wow. and, oh. and the show is is excellent. Oh, so that's Varney that. v Rooney and it's currently on Foxtel here in Australia. I can really recommend oh, it. That sounds absolutely really recommend wonderful. It. And then the other thing is we've both got something in common because we've had a Yotam Otolenghi week, haven't we? Yes. I had dinner with him this week. I want to hear about it. I haven't asked you about it. I went to see him with about 3,000 other people where he completely packed out the entire concert hall right up into the gods. Yes. And who was the other chef he was with? Jane? Alice Zaslavsky. Okay. Or, Fabulous. Yeah. And uh, she had the best gig. She was with him for about 12 stage shows over yes. 10 days. They did New Zealand and around Australia. Wow. And ours was the last one. And did they cook? Sort of. Um, yes. Because you can't do hot food. No, they couldn't do anything hot. Yeah. But they did this cute thing where they had a quiz that, mm. that you had to do through a QR code on your phone. Yes. And then the two people who were the fastest came up and they went to the back and then he, she created a dish and he created a dish and they used different toppings yes. over these beans. Yes. So one chose a garlic yogurt, one chose preserved lemons, all the very yes. yottam type of things. And then they came out and did a taste test and voted which they liked. Oh, and fantastic. And they've been doing that all the way around. And so Alice did it with the audience voting. So everyone voted what they wanted yes. her to put on the beans. And then he did his own yes. version. It was so cute mm. and clever and well done. Mm. Because his new Test Kitchen book is all about good things. It's all about those little jars of things that you can prepare to have in your fridge, the dressings, the toppings yep. that you can 
always have yep. to add to something to enhance it, yep. uh, as if Otolenghi food needs to be enhanced know, even more because it's just extraordinary. I don't know if you know, do you know the story about his grandmother? Yes, he, he talked about that, so go okay. ahead. Well, yeah. So th- I think this was the thing I loved the most about the whole evening was that his grandmother was a Mossad spy in Israel from the early 60s into the late 70s, and she was part of the team that prosecuted Adolf Eichmann. Oh, I didn't know that. So oh, after the war, that. Adolf Eichmann, who was one of the worst Nazi officers, mm, absolutely. went off to Argentina where there was no extradition treaty. And once he was tracked down, Mossad wanted to get him back and try him for war crimes. And because they couldn't get an extradition agreement with Argentina, they kidnapped him. And they brought him back to Israel where he was tried for Mm. war crimes and he was later executed. And Yotam's grandmother, I I think he said she was responsible for creating and liaising with them in relation to different various identities that the players had who flew him back to Argentina. And Yotam's mother recalls one evening her mother saying to her father, he's on the plane and oh, wow. and Yotam's mother said, who's on the plane? And, and they sort of fobbed her off and said, oh, just uncle so-and-so is coming back to Israel. And, oh. and she knew there was more to the story. But it was completely kept secret from the family. It was completely secret wow. from everybody. Did they know she was a Mossad agent? No, they, did, no, they knew nothing about yeah. this. Okay. She was apparently a much-loved woman mm. but very cold yeah, how So everyone loved her, but she was not a warm person, no, but they no. thought she, they adored her. And uh, it was really only revealed when there was a book written about the whole expedition to get him back. And they named Yotam's grandmother wow. as having been because it's one really of the not that long ago. No. That's the, that's the no. extraordinary thing. That's you know, right. that's really not that long ago at that's all. That's right. Yeah. Oh, how so, fascinating. Yeah. Well, I had a slightly more intimate oh, occasion. Oh, my goodness. Uh, sitting with him at a table. You were sitting next to him? Um, well, the, yes, I was sitting one away from him, but I sort of oh, the three of us no. were having a, a, a lovely chat. Oh. And, uh, and he really, I said to you earlier, sometimes when you meet your heroes, you're disappointed. Yeah. But he, to all intents and purposes, is just the most genuine, real kind of guy. And I, I, you know, I love really that he came to WA or he wanted to come to WA during the pandemic, yes, but it was all cancelled. And, right. and he was so appreciative of Western Australia. Yeah. And we, the, the beautiful sunset was going down at the Cottesloe oh. Beach as we were eating and it was just magnificent. And he had been collaborating with the chefs to sort of uh, create this menu that we ate. And uh, so we sort of shared food at the table to start with and then we had a main course and dessert. And it was, it was lovely. And he spoke to everybody and it was a really very special evening. I certainly won't forget it in a long time. Oh, Louise, that sounds amazing. Mm, mm. Wow. And apart from that, I have to say, all I have been doing is training little Alfie. I mean, he's only been here four days. So oh. He's doing very well, aren't you, Alfie? very full on. Yeah, a new it's very full on. It very is. Very full on. It is. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? What have you been diving into? Uh, I, well, Happy Valley. Diving into that. So I had seen the first two series, but my husband hadn't. So we went back and watched Mm. from the beginning and I had forgotten a bit of it. And are you able to sit in front of it and just watch all of it? Something's happened to me. I have to turn away sometimes. 
it is quite stressful. It is very stressful. I, I just, yeah, I, th- I think something's changed in me. You with and some I might television. have roles because I, I thought I have... was the softie. Yes, I know. It's it's funny. I, my children now complain because I get up and I just walk away into the other part just of the room. Sort of and just I can still be there. I can still kind of glance at the screen. But okay. just recently. Mm, that's I've... interesting. I've become a bit desensitised, I think. Yeah. I think it's the apprehension of violence yeah. and terror in this oh. show. It's not the anything bad in your face. It's the apprehension of yeah. what's about to happen. Yeah. That's and what's That Tommy me. Lee Royce, every time he comes on the screen. Oh, isn't he brilliant? He, I, I just, Actor, he's uh, brilliant. He's so good. But he really does fill me with terrible yes, fear. He's, yeah. Well, yeah. And Sarah Lancashire, I just, I love her so much. And I just cannot believe it's the same woman as the actor who plays Julia in the t- TV series Julia about the yes. first television cook, Julia, Julia Childs. Child. Yeah. She's just such a great, versatile actress. Yeah, she, she doesn't is. even look the same. It's very commendable anyway. But, yeah. Um, yeah. She's, She's very busy it. actress. She seems to be doing a lot. Oh, it's wonderful. I'm so happy for her. Yeah. Um, no and I'm also is. loving, I've been watching Bump with Claudia Carvin and Angus Sampson. It's got the most wonderful cast. So that's the story. It's set in an Australian uh, Sydney high school, or it starts mm. with a, a young girl who's at school and she's in the toilets and she gets some pains and something's happening and they have to call an ambulance. And then the ambulance, uh, the paramedic says, you're about to have a baby. <laughs> And, it's not unheard of, is it? And it's this not girl unheard had of. no idea that <sighs> she was pregnant. And Claudia Carvin is the mother of the young mm. girl who gives birth. And then it's the story of, mm. of how they deal with that, who the mm. father is, because it's not who it might first appear to be. And it's sort of how the whole thing unfolds. It's absolutely fabulous. It's a great series. I'm, I'm really loving it. And the only other thing I've been enjoying is I've been loving the Mel Robbins podcasts. Yes. <laughs> and she's done these podcasts for the start of the new year all about, you know, creating new habits. And as you mm. know, I'm, you know. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm a real sucker for that sort of thing. Yes. So I've been loving that. Uh, and that's about it. Excellent. Yeah. So that's it for our trip to Japan and Tokyo. We hope you've enjoyed a little sedentary travel. Yes. And we'd love to hear if you have a favourite book written by a Japanese author. And we'll be back soon with another bookish conversation. Bye for now. Bye. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening. And thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too, at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Sorry, he's just dreaming, so he's making... Oh, my goodness. He's making little growls on my... And he's got his little legs on your legs. Sorry to interrupt you. Oh he just, just, I could just hear the howl. His little scrumptious little, little dream. <laughs>